Welcome to episode 14 of Writers Festival Radio, Crime and Punishment. This episode celebrates the thrill of a good mystery. Our three guest authors, Katie Tallow, Amy Stewart, and Scott Thornley, have all spent a lot of time thinking about where to hide the bodies and how best to throw us off the scent. It's a good thing they're using those powers to delight and entertain. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We're broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. We'll begin with Lucy Van Olden-Barneveld in conversation with Ottawa's own Katie Tallon. Welcome to the Ottawa International Writers Festival podcast edition. I'm Lucy Van Olden Barneveld. Usually you can find me on your television at 6 p.m. every evening, but I'm very happy to talk about books whenever the Ottawa International Writers Festival comes around. And today I'm very excited to talk to Katie Tallow, who lives right here in Ottawa. She has been writing award-winning screenplays and directing films, documentaries, and television series for more than 20 years. Katie attended school at Carleton University and Algonquin College. Dark August, which we're going to talk about today, is her debut novel, and what a debut it is. And uh, Katie joins me now. Hi, Katie. Hi. Thank you so much. I sound like such a local oh. girl, don't I? Carlton, <laughs> Algonquin. <laughs> yes. And you've included that so beautifully in Dark August. So we've just heard um, part of the beginning of the book where you set it all up for us. So just tell us more about what Dark August is about and what we just heard there. Well, that was a bit of a flashback that the beginning of the book starts with. And it sort of sets up um, a little bit of Augusta's mindset, the main character. She is this 20-year-old and she's a little bit lost in life. Um, She was orphaned at eight and she's sort of living this aimless existence when we meet her. And she gets this call from her great-grandmother that um, sorry, from that her great grandmother has died, and she has inherited her house and an old dog. And um, so she ditches her loser boyfriend and she heads back to her hometown of Ottawa. And there she finds this really rundown old house and she starts looking around, isn't quite sure what to do, but she finds this old trunk and in it some documents and photographs and things that belong to her mother. And she knows these things. She remembers them from when she was a child. And her mother was a police detective. And before her death, she was obsessed with this missing persons case. And that case went cold. And these documents belong to that cold case. And Gus decides to recreate her mother's evidence wall from memory. And she's sort of guided by her mother's voice. Um, And she kind of finds new purpose in life. she's going to pick up where her mother left off and solve this cold case. And she's going to do this in in, in a sense, bring closure to her mother's death. Um, A death that has left her reeling, you know, since, since childhood, but in digging up this evidence, she stirs up some, uh, some sort of conspiracy of deception that, that awakens the wrath of some pretty dangerous people. And, they would prefer the past is left dead and buried. So, you know, there's secret tunnels, there's an explosion that blows a town off the map, there's a smoking gun, you know, with one bullet in it. And uh, there's, there's a few taxidermy surprises along the way. So I think it's kind of a fun ride. It sounds dark, but it's also a fun ride for readers. 
It sure is. And getting to know uh, Augusta or Gus Monet, she's she's a she's a 20-year-old fireball and just full of spunk. Where did she come from, Katie? Who is Gus Monet? What inspired her? Oh, you know, so many things. Um, she is a little bit of me, but she's also a little bit of my daughter. I'm very inspired. I mean, my daughter's, you know, my best friend. She's, I know her so well, and I really wanted to write a story that she would love, and she loves mysteries. And so Gus was this character. I mean, there, I, I've made, as you said, I've made films, and I've explored um, characters a little bit like her before, characters kind of on the fringes who are a little bit in limbo, in this place of limbo. And I really wanted to kind of explore that, that sort of space between when you're kind of stuck, you're not quite a child anymore, you're not quite an adult, you don't know where you're headed. Uh, and, And she finds sort of this purpose. And I think I wanted to sort of explore that idea. And I guess she comes into her own a little bit. And I think that's where her tenacity comes up, her persistence, her drive, and where we really see her blossom. Right. Yeah, you know, one one of the scenes, and you touched on it there, is the scene with the, the blue trunk where she's sort of wallowing in her past as she goes through all of these treasures from her childhood. But as well as the descriptions that you gave us this just there, I was also struck by her resilience. You know, she's so young, she has so much pain behind her, um, and you really put a lot on her young shoulders. How did how did how do we know she can handle this? Well, I almost feel like she's lost so much that she has nothing to lose, and that gives her a little bit of fearlessness, potentially on the reckless side. But I feel like she's a character that you kind of come to root for so much, especially with her sidekick dog, you know, along for the ride and the two of them are just kind of in it together that, you know, that recklessness, you, you start to admire in a way she is fearless. She will be that girl who will walk into the dark basement or go into the middle of nowhere in a field, you know, to explore an abandoned house just because, you know, and I, I feel like I, I, would like to be like that and I'm not but but I I like writing that kind of character because you never know what she'll do and you're sort of like going no don't do that but but you're also rooting for her yeah and as we go along she learns about herself about her mother um about this case and also about being a police detective now how did you learn about being a police detective that you could make Gus Monet a great police detective or detective, I guess. Well, it's interesting because I feel like I was able to take this character who had absolutely no skills in that department, um, other than having, you know, known her mother as a child was one, but, you know, you don't understand what it entails at all. And she really is a complete amateur. And so I just tried to put myself in her shoes in every circumstance or her shoes, you know, knowing who she was and say, what, what could I do here? How could I maneuver out of this situation? Or who would I talk to? Um, it, it's not based on knowing what a detective would do. It's kind of her instinct. It's kind of what you might do. I, I like the fact that she's that amateur because we could all kind of put ourselves in that situation and say, what would we do? How would we get out of this mess? Or, you know, find out about this little 
tidbit. And, and she's very observant. She has a bit of a photographic memory. So she remembers faces and moments and scenes. And, and I think that's her skill that she innately has, that we, she doesn't even know she has. But it really plays well for someone digging into the past because those memories keep coming at her and slowly come back to her and form the truth of what really happened alongside the evidence. Yeah. And at one point you, you do invoke the name Nellie Bly, this, the, you know, this infamous <laughs> journalist, female journalist from back in the day. Um, so I guess there's an element of that too, investigative journalism and, and, and in, you know, inquiry that, uh, that is very much part of her. Yes. And I, and Nellie was famous for going into situations and embedding herself to do her investigating um, and really living it. And, and being quite fearless in that respect. I think she went into an asylum at one point and um, as a patient to investigate that, that scenario. So, you know, her fearlessness, I think, was what I was hooking onto there. Um, and she does meet a wonderful uh, former journalist, uh, Renata, who is in a, a senior's home when she meets her and goes to interview her. But she's a, a storehouse of the past, even though she's slightly losing her mind a little bit. Um, but she's one of my favorite characters. Yeah, and Renata also, I mean, she's 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 an important character. She's not in the book for a long period of time, but another very strong female um, role model and character. So just tell me about how how women's strength shaped what what you were trying to do here. Well, again, you know, it sort of comes back to my daughter. I, I really was writing a story for her and to inspire her, to show her a little bit of, of you know, this character, uh, a little bit of myself, um, you know, and I think that Gus is, is really, um, has made mistakes and has had that boyfriend who didn't treat her well and kind of messed up that situation, but, but ended up walking away from it. And, and just her ability to push forward, um, against all these forces that seem to be working to, to stop her um, really felt um, important to me. Um, and I, I think it's just, it goes back to stories that interest me. I think, you know, I, I'm always, uh, the authors that I'm interested in, you know, um, I remember reading The Edible Woman, Margaret Atwood's Edible Woman years ago when I was a young woman, and it really resonated with me that a woman, a character could step outside of her life and, and really look at it and in, an, in a whole new way. And I love those sorts of characters. And I think coming of age stories, turning points in people's lives um, are when we see what we're made of, you know, and I, I feel like that's a little bit of what I was exploring. Um, not necessarily always consciously. I really wanted to tell a fun mystery with a lot of twists and turns. Um, and it happened to center around this young woman. Yeah. And yeah, and I have to say, I really liked Renata an, an awful lot. This this uh, older journalist who had, who was a pioneer in, in many of her own, you know, in, in her own time and in her own way. Uh, Katie, you, you set you, the book is set in, in Ottawa, in Island Park, in Westboro, also in Elgin, Ontario, which you blow up. So I, I guess you write what you know, but why was Ottawa the right place for this story? Well, I think it does connect a little bit to what you just said. You write what you know. Um, for me, 
I had no real experience writing novels. And um, I'd been a writer of screenplays and, and been writing my whole life, but a novel was a whole other kettle of fish. And so I, I dove into it with little understanding of how to approach it, but I had the story I wanted to tell and I wanted to set it on the streets, you know, in my neighborhood, the places I knew so that I could, aside from sitting at my desk and writing, I could go and walk those places, drive those avenues, go out to that small town and look around and, and see what it was like. Because for me, I think when I'm writing atmosphere is really important and a mood, and I have to get in that mood to really, you know, feel like I can tell the story. And so it was helpful. And I, at the time I had my dog, Levi, who is a character in the book, and, and we would go for walks around our neighborhood. And the house that, you know, is her great grandmother's house that she inherits was around the corner. I based it on this house that was kind of run down and right on Island Park Drive. But it looked like nobody lived there, but somebody did. And I th- thought it was really haunting. And, you know, so for me, it was kind of feeling these sights and sounds and smells of my hometown my that I knew quite well too and I felt like I could really showcase in a in a way that felt authentic and specificity is really important you know I think to storytelling and to even say mention the works or Susie Q Donuts or you know certain Wellington Street and Hintonburg it's all really things that are that bring a level of depth to it for me visually and, and authentically. And I, I, you know, it's not exotic to somebody who lives in Ottawa, but it might be to somebody else in another part of the world. And yet I have people who have called, have sent me notes or emails or whatever saying, I love that you set this in Ottawa. I never get to read a thriller set in Ottawa. Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. I mean, I just flipping through it. And I've also just recently done a, an interview with an author set in Hamilton. That book was uh, set there. And that's where I was born and raised. And now here, Ottawa. It it really is very exciting when you are, are from the place that you are reading about. Um, well, I think it I think it adds a whole layer for someone who's reading it. They're walking down Wellington Street in their mind in a whole different way than somebody from, you know, Florida is. Yeah, absolutely. So as a screenwriter, Katie, and you've been doing this for more than two decades, describe the difference in how you approach storytelling then. I think they're really similar. I think screenwriting is all about showing someone something. And, you know, really it's a template for a director then to take it to another level. The novel, I guess the difference would be a novel isn't really turned into a movie. It can be, obviously, you know, in the future, but but it's meant to be read. It's meant to be absorbed by a reader. And so, um, for me, what I what I learned as a screenwriter was to show a story and to show character. Um, a character doesn't really tell you who they are; they show you, and it's their actions, their wardrobe, their their dialogue, their you know. And so, all of that. Um, I, I still, even as I write novels though I I still see scenes it plays out like a movie in my head and I just can't seem to switch that off but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing I think it's um a a screenplay a a novel just allows me to explore a little bit further into the mind of the character than I might in a screenplay right this is your first published novel Katie what does that feel like to publish your first novel uh, you know at this stage in your life 
oh, it feels amazing. <laughs> you know, I was just about to say, woohoo, you know, but it, it really does feel like that. It's, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s and I, I have my first, I'm an up and comer, you know, up and coming writer. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it seems like the right, the right time. I don't know that you can ever plan out, you know, when you're going to do something. And I feel like I have enough writing under my belt that this um, felt like the right time. And I had actually written another novel before this, but it wasn't published. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because that was in 2013, right? Gone Monday. And you actually won a contest with this. I did. I, um, I was I was reading Stephen King's. I'd always wanted to write a novel, but um, was distracted by life, you know, career, having a child, you know, all the things that come with life. And I and I I am was one of those people for the longest time who said, I'm gonna write a novel one day. And it just never happened. And so I was reading Stephen King's um, book on writing called On Writing. And he made a suggestion that really made sense to me. He said, put your characters in a situation and just see what happens. And that seemed like the easiest way to enter a novel for me. I had this great idea for a situation and I put these two characters in it and I just went and it just kind of wrote and I, I was free because I didn't really know how to write a novel. I just wrote. And then I had this thing, which I wasn't sure was a novel. It kind of looked like one, but who knew? So I entered a, a novel contest in the UK for unpublished women writers and it won, which really surprised me. Um, and I thought, well, I think I can do this. It really just buoyed my sense of, you know, I, uh, confidence in, in continuing because at that point it was either sort of like, I don't know, what am I doing really? So that, that led me to actually, um, that manuscript helped me get my New York agent, which is uh, the gentleman who has been so wonderful. And he has been my agent for eight years now. And he got us this publishing deal with my second novel um, for Dark August. Wow. Your second novel, but your first published novel, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I really oh. consider Dark August my first novel because it has gone through all the layers that happen to you when you get published. You get the editor, you get um, notes, you get a team working with you to make it the best it can be. And, um, you know, my first manuscript was never went through that process. So it's kind of a, almost a rough draft in my mind, even though it went through many drafts. Um, this one, you know, when you get into the whole publishing world, you realize there's so much involved and it's so wonderful to have all these people rooting for you and working with you. Yeah, so so they obviously saw something in your writing, gave you the contract and then threw a whole bunch of support at you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the support was in the form of an editor to offer notes and feedback. But, you know, the wonderful thing about Harper was that they always, no matter what note they gave me, no matter what um, feedback they asked me for in terms of cover or anything, they always deferred to me. They always said, you're the, but you're the writer. It's your book. So if you don't agree with this note or, or this cover or this title, then we'll change it, you know, or, or you yeah. change it. And Katie, how, uh, I'm just always interested in a, in a writer's process. How disciplined are you? Are you good about keeping your butt in the chair? Like, how did you get this written? It's very, it's, it's thick. There's a lot of words here. So how did this happen for you? <laughs> yeah, it's probably too many words, but. Um, Not at all. <laughs> um, I, 
I am a person who is really working on my process, I think. Um, I've, you know, will go through fits and starts with writing um, or, or did for the longest time. Um, this novel took probably about three years to write and it was, could have been written in a shorter period of time if I'd kept my bum in the seat, as you said. Um, but I, I tend to get quite obsessed when I write and I get into the headspace. As I mentioned earlier, I'm walking around, I'm thinking of the novel. I'm, I'm a little hard to live with probably, but I, all I'm thinking about is this novel and this story and I'll wake up in the middle of the night and make notes and get up early, work till late, have these sort of obsessive, because it's, it's, a, it's a big story to contain it, and it's a lot. And if you're just writing one little scene or one chapter, you can lose the rest of it if you don't keep the momentum going um, to remember, especially when it's a mystery. I feel like the clues you have to, and the dates, if I change anything, if I shift something, the whole thing kind of unravels. Um, but my process is getting better. I'm, I'm finding that the best thing I can do is just sit down and write every day. And it doesn't matter for how long uh, I try and write for a few hours every morning, but it's just getting there and it doesn't have to be because I'm in the right mood or inspired or have thought of this great thing. It, it really comes with the writing and I've slowly learned that I, I used to wait for the inspiration and now I find the inspiration. I go looking for it and it's a bit of a difference. Mm. And do you also, because this is a mystery, have your whole office stuck with sticky notes all over the walls and arrows and, and lines and, and just as you plot this thing out to keep track of everything? Oh, you should see it. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bulletin board that's uh, that's like some sort of evidence wall, you know, but uh, and I actually did recreate Augusta's evidence wall. Um, I had to create it. I got, I recreated all the little pieces of evidence. I found photographs that resonated with me that made sense for that wall and put them all in the right spot and drew the red lines with red marker like her mother had. And the whole thing was recreated because it then helped me at a glance, see what I was talking about when I was referencing it. And I have everything from chronological storylines, backstories of each character when they were born because when you're dealing with a story that layers the past and the present, you have to make sure that your characters were, you know exactly when they were born, even if that never comes up in the novel. It's, you've got to know that they were the right age when they were at police school with her mother. And then now what age would they be? And, you know, it, it's this entire puzzle that has to be, some people I've heard, you know, James Lee Burke, one of my favorite authors says he just kind of goes into the story and starts writing and his stories are complex. I don't know how he does it without outlining, but I'm an outliner. I need to kind of break it all down onto cue cards. And I, I kind of take the idea that it's kind of controlled chaos. I love to know where I'm headed and how it's going to all sort itself out, but that I usually end up disemboweling completely. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so Katie, um, this is just such a compelling character, Augusta Monet, Gus Monet. Will she continue her investigations? Will we hear more from her? Yes. I am actually oh, writing a sequel. Us. Yes. Um, you know, I, I don't want to give too much of that sequel away because I'm kind of in the midst of it. And so it is in that 
kind of outlined yet chaotic spot, but it's it's going to just pick up a couple of years later. Um, and Gus is going to be um, she moves into this old apartment building. I I'm actually moving her to the Glebe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on, moving up. on okay. to the Glebe. No, I love the Glebe. I used to live in the Glebe when I was in my twenties, um, and. I adore that whole neighborhood and the history of it. And um, she's going to discover um, some some dark things going on in the Glebe and get embroiled <laughs> in another mystery. And it's kind of in her wheelhouse. She's going to do more of her amateur detective skills, um, detectiving and, um, and Levi's along as well. You know, he'll be there too. So, um, oh. yeah, no, I'm definitely <laughs> planning uh, in my mind right now a trilogy. Um, I love the idea that the first novel, Dark August, um, reson- you know, is is looking back into her childhood, and in the second novel, she actually has a child of her own, and okay. in the third one, I like I imagine her looking back as an older woman, um, and potentially there'll be some mystery with her daughter. So it's a lot about mothers and daughters, and it's a lot about a life cycle, sort of, from beginning to end. But um, I see it as that, as a trilogy of this woman's life and and where the mysteries take her. Yes. Oh, we look forward to that. Katie, just, I mean, before I let you go here... um, this is your, your, your first novel. It's all very exciting um, to release a wor- something that you've been working on so long. What's it been like for you during COVID-19 as a brand new author, as somebody who's trying to get the work out there? What has this time been like? Well, you know, Lucy, I don't know any better. So, <laughs> mm, <laughs> you know, right. I don't know what it's like to go on a book tour and to speak in front of people at, you know, bookstores and all of that stuff and and that makes me a little nervous I'm a lot more comfortable behind my laptop you know and I I did one speaking engagement in February just before the pandemic um, restrictions came into place and and that was great but it was nerve-wracking you know um, to speak in front of people about the novel and and I'm sure I would have gotten used to it but um, I just feel really lucky. I have had a wonderful experience. I've gotten some great reviews and had a lot of attention for the novel and it's been on the bestseller list um, in the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and um, I just feel very fortunate. I would never complain. There are so many things going on in the world right now that this is just a blessing and I can't uh, I wouldn't complain at all. And like I said, I don't know any better. So this is my first novel and this is the way it was launched and it was a wonderful launch. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited to uh, start on the next one. That was CBC's Lucy Van Oldenbarneveld in conversation with Katie Tallow about her acclaimed bestseller, Dark August. Up next, we have a conversation between Andrew Piper, who we spotlighted in our very first episode of Writers Festival Radio, and Amy Stewart, whose latest, Still Here, picks up where Still Mine and Still Water left off. Hello, I am Andrew Piper, and I am delighted to uh, be the host or questioner or interviewer of the wonderful, um, and I, I can also say my friend and colleague, Amy Stewart. Hi, Amy. Hi, Andrew. It's nice to be here. I apologize in advance, but I did want to start with a, you know, the question that we are all asking each other, whether it's, you know, with colleagues or friends or family or just people you bump into these days. 
Um, but specifically in relation to writing, I wanted to ask about the pandemic and, and specifically as a writer, I, I, it feels that it feels to me that writers have had very, very different responses um, from a creative and productivity standpoint to the pandemic. I mean, some people are just unable to write at all. And I'm hearing also reports of people who are hyper productive, people who are sort of, um, you know, just getting a lot of work done in this situation. Where would you put yourself? Well, I'm definitely not hyperproductive. I don't think in the best of times that I'm hyperproductive, but um, I mean, obviously I have three kids who are, you know, sort of elementary school aged. Um, I'm not changing diapers or anything like that, but they are still, uh, they have until yesterday, I had at least one or two, three kids in the house at all times. So, you know, there was a logistical difficulty in getting things done. And then especially at the beginning, the sort of March, April, I just felt like I was in this fog. I think a lot of us were of adjusting to this very intense new reality. I mean, my parents are in their 70s and even they say that over their lifetime, they've never sort of experienced something where you actually feel like it's a tectonic shift in terms of what your life is going to look like on a day-to-day basis. And so I didn't have the capacity um, then. I wasn't really doing any writing at all. And then, but then as things, we sort of settled into a bit of a routine um, and got used to the reality of, you know, going to half empty grocery stores with a mask on and like Lysol in your cart before you go in. I, I found that my bandwidth, my mental bandwidth was actually a lot more available because I do have three kids. So in our normal life, you know, they all play hockey. We could be attending like 12 hockey practices a week and, and, you know, school and everything else. So I found that creatively, like I was coming up with a lot more ideas and taking a lot more notes about, you know, future projects or things I'd like to write. Um, But only recently has that translated to actually returning to some kind of regular writing routine so it's a bit of both I think I've had more I've been more inspired and had more ideas and and sort of mental energy but logistically um, it's been hard for me to actually find the time and space to write. It's interesting that you've you found a creative bloom in this moment Um, do have you found that those those ideas have, however, indirectly been kind of shaped by, um, you know, this new reality, or are they quite independent of, you know, the pandemic and its particulars? Well, I think I'm always shaped by um, stuff that's going on. Like we, you and I share an editor and I, I would say that she is constantly telling me to scale back on the like social commentary (laughs) in my writing. I mean, I think in still uh, water, the middle book, uh, the second novel, I had, you know, an entire scene where two of the characters were talking about like um, why, why like we should be ripping down statues and, or monuments to, you know, oppressors. And, and, and she was like, why are you putting this in the middle of your novel? So I do think that I am impacted and what's churning through my mind, you know, does end up on the page. But I will say that, that one, 
one thing that I did write over the course of this pandemic was an essay that was included in in an anthology um, for actually the West End Phoenix, which is a a Toronto sort of newspaper. And um, it was about, so I won't go obviously go into the whole story, but when I was 10 years old, a group of friends and I found a dead body walking home from school. And, um, and I had, you know, was, that was 1985 or six. So, you don't back then, like we just didn't have our lives weren't recorded the way they are now. So that was obviously like a formative thing for me, but I just, it just kind of went into the recesses of my brain. But then one day on one of our early walks in March, our kids were talking about like the scariest things that had ever happened to us. And I mentioned that and I'd never told them before. So of course they want all the details. And then what resulted from that is I actually went home and thought, you know what, I should, obviously the story made the news. So I, I went and researched it and found out, you know, who it was that we found and all this, this information about this person, because we didn't know anything. Thing. Like it just wasn't the same back then where in terms of the availability of information, but it turns out that she was a, she was a, a homeless woman and she had frozen to death and it turns out there was a whole inquest into her death. So just that kind of thing in terms of, of having the space to sort of follow through on those thoughts and ideas. And that's really been, um, that's really come from the pandemic, I think. Wow, that's 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 fascinating. I'm sure uh, our listeners are keen to um, um, talk a bit about where we're at in the Still series, your your series of novels, uh, most recently Still Here, which is the third book um, featuring your PI Claire O'Day. Mm-hmm. And so, could you, um, uh, you know, just sort of set up where? what the premise of Still Here is, and then how, briefly, how it relates to the two preceding books. So the Still books are a series, but everyone was, each one of them was written sort of so that you could read it as a standalone. So they're, they're sort of connected. And and I think, you know, I would encourage people, the, the, the sort of ideal way to go about it is probably to start at the beginning, but that's not necessary. So by the time Still Here begins, the PI, Claire O'Day, has sort of found her footing as she's working as an investigator, and it's work that she really fell into in a sort of strange way. Um, And she's actually now searching for Malcolm, who is the person who hired her. So that's sort of explained, you know, early in the book, so that, like I said, you don't have to have read the first two. Um, But so it does act on the one hand, as a standalone story of Claire searching for Malcolm and and digging into his backstory. He had a wife who went missing two years ago, and obviously his now disappearance is is deeply connected to his wife's disappearance a few years earlier. Um, But it also, for the people who have, readers who have read the first two, it, it will close the sort of overall arc of, of the series, which is Claire's sort of personal journey. Um, it is the last book. I, I, I'm a never say never kind of writer. I see it as the last book in the series, but um, never say never. Okay. Well, that, that um, begs a couple of questions in my mind too, that are kind of, that interest me. The one you've sort of answered now that, that this is the close of Claire's arc, um, which kind of, 
marks the three books as a trilogy of a kind, but as you mentioned, they're all standalone, which is quite unique, I, I think. But when you were when you were writing and, and, and thinking your way through Still Mine, the first book, did you anticipate, oh, you know, this this could go this could go beyond this book? And if so, did you have an arc, or was that kind of something that was, you know, sort of spontaneously, organically constructed on the fly? Well, what happened was I did have an arc for Claire. And originally, when I set out, I thought, okay, this is going to happen over the course of this book. And then about 100 pages in, I recognized, like, there's absolutely no way that I can take this character from, you know, A to B um, over the course of this book, like, unless I do some kind of crazy thing where, you know, she had a lot of personal work to do and that each book it actually unfolds over a relatively short period of time so I think still mine is the longest and it's seven or eight days so none of the books take place over you know weeks or months so for her to sort of it go through this personal arc seven days just wasn't going to cut it so the way it works now is that each book is about you know, five, six, seven days, but there is a period between them. Um, so, you know, six weeks has elapsed between the first. So Claire will have done some work, presumably, you know, just in terms of healing and whatever else and, and, and gaining, you know, confidence and learning and stuff like that. So I think what happened is I just realized, like, I can't, I can't do this arc in one book. So either I've got to change it, or I've got to write more books and and the second uh the second thought one out so um and when i when i went to you know we share a publisher also and when i when simon and schuster showed interest they were interested in that idea that we would continue the story over i think even then we knew that it would probably be three books and that's how it worked out so claire is a commonality um the the storylines are interconnected although independent book to book there is the element of still in the in the title that mark that mark it as a as a series but to me uh, additionally there is what i think of now as a sort of the amy stewart trademark or theme which is an investigation of of missing people that is combined with um, the pursuit of the investigator, you know, that the, that typically yeah. your main character is being pursued or hunted or haunted as she conducts her own investigation, often into missing per, a missing person or people. And I was curious to know whether that was that relationship of, you know, sort of searching while being hunted uh, was conscious. It's like, you know, this is going to be some, or, or, you know, that, that, that's something that in now in hindsight, you look back and say, oh yeah, you know, that is, that is my theme. And, and if the latter, you know, is there, is there kind of a, you know, self-therapy insight you might provide into, you know, where that comes from, that duality of searching while being pursued? Well, I think pretty early on, again, in the books, I sort of understood that there was two things two sort of themes or ideas that I was going to be exploring pretty heavily. And one was the idea of memory, which is basically how, how obviously subjective, but also just like deeply flawed it is and how 
um, you know, we'll all, our, our brains will change details or misremember things or, or somehow alter based on, you know, our own beliefs or what we wish had happened or whatever the case may be, or our own sort of perspective and, um, and how we feel about a situation or another person. So that idea of memory that, you know, two people could remember the same events or relationship very differently. And then also the idea of, of empathy. So I think particularly in the first book, I'm, I, I'm asking a lot of the reader in terms of having empathy for Claire because she's, a, she's frustrating. She doesn't know what she's doing. And she's also just deeply frustrating in terms of giving into her own vices and being flawed and whatever the case may be. So I'm asking empathy from the reader to, to, our, to Claire, but also that duality that you talk about served the purpose of having Claire come at her cases from a place of empathy to her, like the person that she's searching for, because she of all people recognizes that you can be missing um, because you need to be, or because something has happened to you that, you know, that it's very, can be very complicated that the idea of who's the good person and who's the bad person again is dependent on perspective and memory and um, and whose story you're getting. So I think that sh- that the fact that she was is a, effectively a missing person from her own life gave her this perspective when when she'd meet people and talk to people about the case and they and they would say, oh, you know, well, this person was a drug addict or they were whatever. That she always had that default of well it's more complicated than that, or that doesn't mean that, you know, their, their life didn't have value or whatever the case may be. Um, So I think that became a very strong device for me to be able to um, just have her be a a little bit different at this type of work where she was coming at it uh, from a perspective of empathy, because she is in there, you know, in some way, shape or form in the same boat as the people that she's searching for. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, you know, you, you talk about, and I, I find it very interesting, the, the, the distinction between likability, which see is, is a word in our world, which gets used a lot. And, and I, I personally sort of struggle with grasping its practical meaning, you know, having, creating characters that induce or, or attract likability. And I do prefer your use of the word empathy you know, having characters that aren't necessarily likable in the sense of, you know, they're good people who do good things and they're kind and they always put a dollar in the, you know, the homeless person's cap. And, you know, the, you know, it's not, you know, it's not just a series or a collection of good traits, but that, you know, we set a set likability aside and think about empathy instead where um, people make bad decisions, but we can still feel for them, understand them and want to go on a journey with them. And I'm wondering you know, are there kind of writerly techniques that you have come to learn in attracting empathy or encouraging empathy on the part of the reader to be visited on characters who might otherwise not be considered strictly likable? Well, I think that to do that, you do have to, you do have to provide the reader with context um, in terms of their backstory and um, in Claire's case, you know, she has multiple sort of sources of 
trauma, including like having lost her mother at a very key age. She had issues with addiction. She had issues in an abusive um, marriage. So I think like most readers would would say, okay, like she's got a lot of reasons to be um, flawed and troubled uh, and to struggle. Um, but I will say too, what's been interesting is that the first book came out in 2016 and, and still here came out uh, in July. So four years between the two books or the three, like three books in, in four years. And I will say that when the first book came out, just collectively something in our sort of culture, the, the idea of the unlikable uh, protagonist <clears throat> or the super flawed protagonist seemed to be like, people would be more vocal about having a big issue with her. And a couple of the reviews said like, oh, it's really hard to sort of cheer for this, this super flawed um, protagonist. But as the other books came out, that really, you really stopped seeing that. And I have found just in sort of circles around books and, and, you know, just talks that I've done and, and, and interviews like this, um, the sort of unlikable flawed protagonist has been embraced in a, in a more, uh, in a much more meaningful way. And I think collectively people are sort of more empathetic in how they read books. And I just noticed that change. Um, and so maybe I'm sure it has something to do with like what we're all living through and how the world has changed in the past four years that maybe we're, we're a little bit, I'm trying a little bit harder to sort of see people for who they are instead of just, you know, casting judgments. So <clears throat> that's been sort of interesting to see how readership general, like overall has just become kinder to, to the characters that it's uh, meet that they're meeting. That's really interesting. Yeah. That, that, uh, that, that's really fascinating. But um I'm going to switch gears a little bit here to uh, offer my congratulations because I read recently about uh, industry news that the Still series is being developed for a television television series. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so that is so. First of all, cheers, clink. Thank, thank uh, you. <laughs> and, and secondly, I, you know, I, I'm always you know, I, and I think our listeners would be too. The you know, the inside story of how the, we see these announcements come and then, you know, we hopefully see that the results of these announcements in shows or movies or whatever. But the, the sort of the inside story of how these things came to be, how they got into the right hands, the, how the deals were struck are very, in my experience, highly varied. Um, so could you share how how this exciting, uh, you know, a, a relationship came about and, 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 and your part in it? Yeah, it, you're so right. Like I, I, this sort of book to film or book to TV journey um, is very, you know, fraught. And, and there's so, what I've learned is that how many sort of stages there are between like someone has shown interest in your content in your, in your book and maybe developing it or to it actually like being something that you're sitting down with a with a bowl of popcorn to watch on your TV. Um, so in my case, I was lucky that that there was interest uh, very early on, I think even before the, because our agents would send books out um, 
you know, before they're even published. So there were, there was interest right away. Um, but I, I have enough writer friends like you and other people in my life who've been through this, who were sort of saying like, don't, you know, you don't have to jump on anything right away. Wait until some, someone shows interest who you feel is a good fit. And I was very lucky to be in that position. Um, and so then a producer, a production company, um, called Lark, they work with NBC, they approached me and they, they're Canadian, but they're like a sort of a chapter of NBC Universal. So they, um, they came to me and this was years ago, I can't remember how many years ago. Um, and then we sort of talked and, and, and I really liked their vision. Um, but then, then because it was a series, I think they, they wanted more of the content before they sort of pushed forward. So as, as I finished, things started to move more quickly. And, and then they say Kobe Smulders, who's a, you know, a, a quite a well-known um, actor. She signed on, uh, she's interested, she was interested in the books and signed on as a producer and, and is sort of championing it. And then they, they, someone, um, uh, they found a, a showrunner who wrote the pilot script. So I got to read that. So there's just all these stages and now there's sort of one, one or two more big hurdles before, like I said, you're sitting in, in front of your TV watching it with your bowl of popcorn. Um, so I think just like writing and publishing, I think the biggest lesson for me has been how, um, how kind of slow it can be a process. And, you know, you have some movies like Gone Girl where the book comes out and the movie comes out two years later because there's a lot of people throwing like a huge amount of money and energy at it. Um, but that's like by far and away the exception and that most of the process is, is um, long. The process is, is long, but on a, you know, on an optimistic note, it does feel like in recent years, and this is probably coinciding with the you know the explosion of streaming uh, networks and and this hunger for content um, that novelists uh, who not that long ago you know five six seven years ago would have been unless you were you know Stephen King or, or of that level you would be would have been actively discouraged from being an uh, you know a creative part of a movie or or television adaptation. Now, there are a notable number of novelists who are part of, um, you know, the television series that are based on the, the novels that they wrote, or they're kind of jumping out from being novelists alone and into television or movie creators, you know, that they're just the creative part of separate projects. And so I guess I wanted to ask was, you know, have you felt that, A, and, and B, have you sort of heard the siren song of, of being a part of that racket of, oh, you know, maybe I'm going to sort of like pitch my stuff, pitch movies, pitch TV, um, fly down to LA back in the days when you could still do that. Um, <laughs> or, you know, or, or, you know, podcast, audio, these kind of other doors that again, used to be absolutely closed to us that are now open a, an inch have you kind of been tempted by that or are you happy in writing the books and, and, you know, letting them be adapted by others? Well, I'm, I get, like, I think I seem to be like a pretty middle ground 
type person um, in, in a lot of ways. And, and I think here, so I don't know because I would have been like a complete rookie if, if the production company would have been amenable to me saying, I want to write the script. Um, but I also recognized because of my life um, when, say, when, when I was writing Still Water at the time, I was still teaching full time and I had three kids. Um, so there was just no way that I was going to throw trying to like script a series on top of that. So I was happy to sort of say, um, you need to find someone else to do this. And, and, and they were also happy to find someone else. Um, but I do think, so I am a, a producer on the series and I have engaged um, with the showrunner about, um, and the produ other producers about, you know, the sort of content and context. And one thing I will say is that, you know, you, you obviously have written many novels. So you, you know that in some ways the novel that the readers get um, in their hands is sort of like the, the 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 part of the iceberg that you can see, and below that, under under the surface, is this huge quantity of of um, storyline and backstory and information that you have conjured up at one point or another. Um, in the writing process that either didn't make it to the page or, or just didn't, you know, didn't become an integral part of the story. And I have found that, that in engaging in the process that I am able to provide a lot of that because the storyline will veer away from the books. And if they say, Oh, you know, we will, we'd like to make this character, a bigger part of the TV version. And I'm like, well, I have like eight deleted scenes I can send you where that character does feature more. And so I think they, they, it's, it's what I'm enjoying and is the fact that they are, are really recognizing me as a source for um, more content that's not actually in the novels, because I mean, you know, how many deleted scenes do you have for every novel that you've written? Mm -hmm. A lot yeah, of them, a lot. right? <laughs> a lot. I don't think, I, I think most people don't realize like how many, how many um, page, how many words you write for uh, compared to the number that actually end up in the book. So, and all of that content stays in your head or, you know, in some file on your computer um, in terms of, of richness of backstory. I mean, just for still mine, I think I, I had 15,000 words, which, you know, is, is about a hundred pages maybe of backstory that just got cut, um, or mm. say 60 pages. Um, so if they need more backstory for this, I can say, well, here you go. I've got, you know, and, and so I, I like being a resource to that end. I wanted to um, sort of come back to uh, sort of full circle back to the pandemic. I, uh, you know, forgive me, but I, it, it feels like the, you know, this moment we're in has, is offered a lot of people. And I'm thinking of writers specifically at the moment, an invitation to consider where we're at in a particular project or even in our careers more broadly um, and then to consider, you know, what are our goals? Who are we? What are, what are we doing this for anyway? Uh, maybe I've forgotten. Um, and, and I guess to the idea of breakthroughs, you know, that um, there's 
you know, sometimes you've, you've obviously broken through, you've, you've had three best-selling novels. Um, you're in a situation to, to uh, eagerly be published and, and write more of the same. Uh, and there's a TV adaptation in the works. That's a breakthrough by any measure. And yet sometimes we can personally kind of interrogate ourselves and think, well, is that a breakthrough? Do I feel like I've broken through? So I just, I just want to ask you, you know, sort of now where you're at upon the conclusion of this, of this series uh, of books, you know, do you feel like you've broken through? And, and if you have, is there sort of, what would, what would constitute or, you know, symbolize for you the next breakthrough? Yeah, I, I don't know that I'll ever feel like I, I, I've broken through. I mean, one thing, when I, w- I was a teacher, you know, I still consider myself a teacher for almost 20 years. And, and one thing that teaching and uh, writing have in common is that there are these profound highs and moments where you feel you know, deeply successful at what you're doing. And then those highs are matched by the lows where you think, you know, I'm a failure and I'm not doing right by my students or my readers or whatever the case may be. Um, and that sense of breakthrough or stability or whatever the case may be is pretty hard to come by um, in both cases. And just, you know, I think that that listeners, Canadian listeners will appreciate this story when I was um, very early in my writing career, probably about 10 or 15 years ago, I actually wrote a letter to Alice Monroe, you know, she of the Nobel Prize winning, um, you know, world short story writing champion. Um, I wrote her a letter, just I don't even know why, because I think I my kids were really young, and I was sort of in this quagmire and, and I mailed it. And I literally mailed it to the town where I knew she lived. Like I didn't have her address. And about two weeks later, she wrote me back. And in her, I know, (laughs) I know my husband said, you have a letter that's from Alice Monroe. And anyway, it was a card and the card had a picture on the front of these sort of angel figures who, who were lying back looking like they were exhausted and feeling sort of tortured. And in the card she wrote, um, you know, thank you for writing and I wish you all the best. And then, and then she said, but I, I am just going to say that the, that the figures on the front of this card are, are probably writers. Um, and I'm going to warn you that it never gets easier. <laughs> and 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 I actually have taken that message through my career since I mean I wasn't published when I wrote that when I wrote that letter to her almost as a message of hope where where the fact that it's not getting to have something that you're doing for a living that you know is going to be challenging you um, on some deeply intense level um, for the as long as you choose to do it um I, I, you know, in, on, on my optimistic days, I really value that. I, some days I don't love the challenge, but, um, but I think that my breakthrough moments are pretty, um, you know, they, ha- they do happen, but they're not like I don't feel that I'm ever going to have a breakthrough um, that sort of sticks around for longer than a day or so. <laughs> So, yeah, I guess I'll just echo what she says. Um, It never gets any easier, and maybe that's a good thing. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. That was Andrew Piper in conversation with Amy Stewart. 
Andrew's latest is the phenomenal The Residence, a haunted house story set in the White House. Amy's latest bestseller is still here. Our third and final guest today is Scott Thornley. Scott spoke with CBC's Lucy Van Oldenbarneveld. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, the podcast edition. My name's Lucy Van Olden-Barneveld, and usually you can find me on your CBC television at 6 p.m., but I'm also very happy to talk books every year with the Writers' Festival. Uh, And today, I'm particularly excited to speak to Scott Thornley, who was born and raised in Hamilton, Ontario, like myself, and that is where his McNeese series of books is set. The city where Detective McNeese uh, solves his crimes is now called Dundurn, though. This is remarkable because as someone from Hamilton, I can tell you that nothing is ever set in Hamilton. So it's very exciting. But before getting uh, serious about writing fiction, Scott Thornley ran a strategic creative firm. Vantage Point, the book we're talking about today, is the fourth book in his McNeese series, and it is just terrific. And Scott Thornley joins me now. Hi, Scott. Hello, Lucy. What a pleasure to finally talk to you. I know I've been kind of stalking you since I read the book about 18 months ago, so uh, (laughs) I'm thrilled to be talking to you here. Um, Tell me about setting this series in Hamilton. I mean, why is Steeltown such a rich place to set a novel? Well, it it actually helps that you're originally from Hamilton because um, like any of us, it's a great place to be from. And that used to be a slight when I was growing up um, for people who left Hamilton. Um, But the fact is, it never leaves you, is my experience. Um, And these books really were born of my life in Hamilton. When did you leave Hamilton? I came away to art college um, in 1964, um, married my childhood sweetheart, who was the uh, head of the cheerleading squad when I was playing football. Um, And she is really the model for Kate in the series. And um, (laughs) really that's where it began as a, in fact, it began as a series of dreams that I captured and wrote down. Um, but Hamilton is woven deeply within them. And not that you've asked, but many do. Uh, the reason I called them Dundurn, Hamilton Dundurn in the beginning, was that um, I really wanted the freedom in a work of fiction um, to move things around. and. Uh, and it sort of stuck for me as a as an idea in its development stage, and um, I'm still happy that I did that. Oh, interesting. Okay. And Kate, as you mentioned, there um, is the, the the detective McNeese's wife who dies, t- who has uh, been passed away for ten years. When when we pick up the story, obviously a real love love story. And I have a couple of questions about Kate in just a second. But can you first tell us about Detective McNeese and 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 Vantage Point. What makes this detective tick? Well, that's a great question. Um, I wish I knew. And at this point, Lucy, I don't know whether I'm writing McNeese or he's writing me. But 
Um, I think my life as a graphic designer and writer um, has invaded this to a certain extent um, from the point of view of um, observation. My, my wife now calls me an observationist and, um, and I take the point that, that I noticed things and I didn't know anything about um, police work when I began. Um, but it, it really, it, it, it began with those dreams and McNeese obviously on some level is a stand in for me in terms of those dreams originally, but then it very quickly, um, took form. And I, I, I know when I'm speaking as McNeese, um, and I can spot, and if I don't, my wife, who is my first reader, um, can spot if I've been inauthentic. Um, so he's he's really uh, he's developed into something that that um, I find very real and honest as a character. Um, but I would say that as well about the supporting cast of characters. They're, they really are their, their manner of speaking, their, their, their way of looking at the world is very much a part of um, what informs me as I start on a new story. And Scott, can you give me an example of what you mean by being an observationist? Something that McNeese uh, takes in, observes, that 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 helps telling this story. Just give us give us an example if you can. Well, it it, it it's interesting because his life outside of um, the actual work of Division One homicide in Dundurn um, has very much uh, been informed by his life with Kate. Um, things that he wouldn't have noticed. Um, like nature, like birds. Um, and so he's always watching and ready for something that happens in the, in the forest behind his cottage, which is on the side of the escarpment. But it also plays out whenever he is um, invited to a crime scene. Um, there are just things that he notices um, that that often go unnoticed. Um, details, details that that on one level look like they may not have anything to do um, or even have the right to be called a detail. It's just something that he'll spot. He'll spot that as well in people's behavior. Um, if someone has a tick or taps their fingers or their feet um, or looks away or gives, as the current word applies, a tell in some way, anytime an awkward question comes up, um, he seems to be first to spot those things. And, uh, and I think that in part, his, his ability to live in nature um, and the things that he learned about animals and birds um, have fed back into how he is as a detective. Right. 
you know, and I, I was very interested that you chose to have Kate die. She, she's been dead for 10 years and, and it's sort of an ongoing source of strength and pain for, for, for McNeese. So how would you describe what the presence of his wife in his mind, the celestial presence of, of Kate, add to him that just being either currently married or being a bachelor wouldn't add to him in terms of his characteristics? Yes, well, uh, um, she really is born of the death of my own wife and um, the dreams that followed um, shortly thereafter um, and and continued with a pattern um, that, well, they could never be called commonplace. They were at once familiar when I slipped into them. And it was only in 2008 when um, I had a six-month run of a very vivid and, um, and upsetting dreams and wrote them down in a um, a diary that I keep next to the bed um, that she became real for me in the first book and and while she has um, morphed somewhat through the first two or three books um, I realized that as those dreams subside the need to have someone and particularly for someone like McNeese, who um, PTSD is always present with with anybody put into a situation like he's in, or as as runs as a kind of through story in some of these books, um, people that have been in the military uh, would have as PTSD is something they live with. I think people that survive cancer. Um, are also people who live with PSD, TD. Um, and so she has morphed in the fourth book and I'm closing in on the finish of the fifth book. And that, and that morphing continues further. Um, but I'm convinced, um, and I actually have sought um, professional advice for this from friends who one is a psychiatrist and um, well, there are a lot of doctors that I consult who are people that I know, but um, I wanted to know if it was at all possible that someone who it would be said uh, had to have PTSD because of the continued onslaught of grim work um, could find a way to deal with that by creating um, a life for someone he knows is dead, um, in effect, bringing her to life in conversation and using those conversations as a way to siphon off um, the trauma of the day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I wondered almost as, as well if it's a way for him to process his own grief. I mean, the grief that is still lingering 10 years later of, of not having his beloved Kate with him uh, anymore. It really adds quite a layer to, to McNeese that we just don't see in, in, um, in, 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 in characters, in, in mystery novels. And, and it just makes him so rich. But PTSD, it's interesting that you 
you can you you suggest that people who have gone through cancer also can have PTSD. We are one of the other characters here, the the special forces veteran who committed the crimes that that we are talking about. And I'm not giving anything away because we we know fairly early on. Um, what is your message with that character? Well, um, I'm fascinated by it. The uh, psychiatrist friend who um, who read the passages with that character, um, she's she's been a professor at McMaster and um, and working at St. Joe's, now retired. Um, she thought that it was the finest novel on PTSD that she'd ever read and one that she would happily give to her students. And I think that for me, through, through all kinds of medium, um, we get either a romanticized view of PTSD or we get the horror of it, or we get the, worst of all, the desire that we need to turn away um, from it. And um, what I wanted to do in that character um, was to present someone who um, knew the risks of what he was doing when he was in service and knows now um, what he felt um, he needed to do to honor that. Um, so, you know, his, his name is Venganza and he's, um, he's very much um, a favorite character of, of mine. I, I, um, I didn't want to finish that book, to be honest, Lucy. Mm. Um, and indeed, I, I, I thought, God, I should. And with the, the book before it, Rob Bone, both Venganza's character and Bishop in Rob Bone, I would have um, happily started writing <laughs> if if time and energy had served um, books on both of them. Yes. Well, maybe at some point in the future. Scott, can we get you to read a section of Vantage Point for us? If you would just set us up, set it up for us, and then uh, give us a taste. Yes. Um, just past the prologue is chapter one. And um, following the previous case, um, Deputy Chief Wallace, who is um, who supports McNeese, um, but is concerned about him, um, has insisted that he uh, he see the psychiatrist appointed by the police board um, for just this purpose of PTSD. Um, so he's now in her office for the first time. You know why you're here? McNeese smiled and took a deep breath. The sheer curtains covering the open windows behind Dr. Audrey Sumner billowed casually, sending pale gray shadows of the mullions dancing across the fabric. He would have been happy to spend the hour just watching them move ideally with something mellow from Miles for a soundtrack. Though Sumner exuded patience, she was waiting for a response. He wondered if 
She might wait through the entire session. McNeese took another breath. The last two cases were very hard on my team, hard on me. Uh, a blue jay called from the garden, so loud and sharp, it might have been inside the room. He looked at her and smiled. It was a good omen, he thought, as he searched the shadows for a flash of wing behind the sun and the shears. Beyond the physical trauma, I think it reasonable for Wallace to question what psychological damage might have occurred during my time in homicide. She didn't miss a beat. And have you an opinion on that? Of course he did. McNeese knew that his dreams weren't normal. So there you go. Mm. Thank you for that. And, and we do get a, a real sense of also the observationist there um, with the descriptions of the, of the curtains and the, and the blue jay. Um, photography, speaking of being an observationist, plays a role with, with the, uh, the vet who committed the crime, Venganza. Can you just describe um, your own experience with photography and why that also helped to, you know, physically demonstrate the observationist in you and, uh, and in these characters? Well, in Hamilton, I was a student at Central Secondary and in the art course, and I had tremendous tremendous teachers. Um, but one of the things that I loved to do was to, in, in the absence of being able to draw from life, draw from the plaster casts, from books, um, seeing art that I'd never seen um, growing up in Hamilton, um, and having an uncle who, who encouraged me to keep drawing. Um, I, I really wanted Venganza to have a, a richer side than just this notion of a warrior. Um, and that he, had, that he had the ability as a photographer to recreate things using examples of um, Goya and the Chapman brothers um, who had done work on Goya's work, anywhere where there had been artists who are pulling um, horrors into creative works as a way of saying to people, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. Um, wow. I that is, I mean, that is just an unbelievable description of, 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 you know, using, using art so powerfully and put it in the hands of a, a very troubled man. Um, but yet, pull out the, the artistic elements of it. It's just, it's just what makes this book so, so unique in my mind. And, you know, Scott, you spent a lot of years as a strategic creative consultant kind of guy. Um, and, and also, you know, just how did, how did that inform your writing and the kinds of things you, you include in, in, in your writing? How did that all work together? Well, I mean, in the work, that I did for decades as a professional designer and writer. Um, and I came to the writing, by the way, having trained as a graphic designer and artist, I, I came to the writing at a time when I really couldn't afford to hire a writer. Um, I looked at what I was doing one day and had a, a small epiphany 
huge in retrospect in terms of the way it turned out um, was that when I'm drawing, um, I'm having a conversation. It's a conversation of putting a line here or putting a color there or changing that color, moving the whole form or scrapping it all together and starting over. So there was always this conversation. And to the degree that it was a rich conversation was the result of the work. And um, in terms of the writing side of it, um, I was often hired um, as in the National Arts Center to, to create a tagline for the Salk Institute, um, one of the greatest um, basic science facilities in the world, boiling down reams of information to come up with a tagline that was simply where cures begin. And um, for the Royal Conservatory, um, again, a very complex organization. Um, the tagline was, um, the finest instrument is the mind. Mm -hmm. So what writing became, and the challenge of writing for me, and sort of, certainly writing in long form professionally as a designer writer, um, was how to extend out a way to grip people under the ribs and hold them there and not be um, tawdry or cliched in, in the approach to it and not speaking down to them, but assuming a level of engaged spirit so that you could lift people up. A lot of the work that I did professionally um, was in the arts and science and sciences here and in, in the States and Europe. Um, so there was always this, what is the story behind the story? And, um, and really that's the core element that made the books possible. Right, the story behind the story, of course. But so when you were doing all of that work, when then did you turn to writing books? When did all of these ideas start forming themselves uh, in, in book form? Well, um, credit for that goes to my wife, Shirley Bloomberg, for, um, mind you, she says that she was cleaning up, which is, I don't believe it. I'm, I'm the one who does cleaning up. Nonetheless, she picked up the diary that was on my nightstand and, um, and read the dreams as I'd written them. Um, as if it was a narrative and said, you've got to write this. This is a book. Um, and I think I, I think I said, there's no way I can do that. I'm already working 10 hours a day in my own work. I can't do it. I can't do it. But um, a few months after that, those dreams continued, though not as vivid as the ones that I'd written down. I took that diary to France where we have a home and, um, and started and erasing memory. Um, really, as the saying goes, um, almost wrote itself. It was a, uh, it was very fast in coming and, and the, the mistakes I made as a writer, I was able to look back on the drafts and see what they were. I could I could identify them where I'd lost um, the track, um, 
So I was thrilled when, when that was picked up. Wow. And you've, that was the first one you've, you've written three since, and it sounds like you're, you're on, on number five here. Um, how, how was it writing the others? Did they come as quickly that once you understood who your character, what your main character was? Yes. Well, the ambitious city and, and you would know being a Hamiltonian, uh, we have these, these phrases that we grew up with. Um, the lunch bucket town, the ambitious city, that was the most positive of all. The armpit of Canada, that, that one stung. The rectum of the universe, that wasn't fun. Um, and I knew all of those. But I always thought the place was beautiful. Yes. Um, they are, they are, they are, as I say, in, in, in some ways, and there are, you know, the guys that I grew up with and played football with um, and, and some of those allied friends, a lot of them are Ukrainians from Brightside, um, and they are um, insistent that there should be a, a, a map of Dundurn, Hamilton, um, with all of the sites that these books unfold in because they all recognize them. They all know where I'm talking about when I mention a street or a corner or a park. Scott, what an absolute pleasure to talk to you about Vantage Point. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation and for this book. I've been grateful for the opportunity, Lucy. Thank you so much. That was CBC's Lucy Van Olden-Barneveld in conversation with Scott Thornley about Vantage Point, the fourth suspense-filled installment of his critically acclaimed McNeese Mystery Series. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We'll send you a tax receipt and our boundless gratitude. Best of all, with your support, we'll be able to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Thank you all for listening today and thanks again to Katie, Lucy, Amy, Andrew and Scott for joining us. We hope you'll join us again on Tuesday for the next episode of Writers Festival Radio, Letting Go of Anxiety with Tara Henley. The podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Mm-hmm.